Blog Talk Radio. Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the city that gave the world beignets and oysters Rockefeller, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, home to the oldest state capitol building west of the Mississippi River. Thank you for joining us for Episode 9. Tonight we'll be discussing the case against Jody Ann Arias, who was convicted of the murder of her former boyfriend, Travis Alexander. Arias was convicted in May 2013 and sentenced to natural life in prison in Arizona in April of 2015, and her direct appeal is currently pending. Good evening, Michael. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm glad to be here. You know, it's been a it's been a little bit of a break, but I'm glad to got well rested, and I'm glad we're going to be covering this one. This is definitely one of them. Uh, I guess they, they call it celebrity cases. Uh, like she wasn't even known beforehand, but now she's a celebrity because of the nature of this case, I guess. Correct, and she made herself a celebrity because she reached out to uh, different news agencies after she was arrested. And began giving them interviews. And then she reached out uh, after her trial, or after her conviction, to schedule an interview. Right. Or before her conviction, actually. So it was... uh, uh, Unfortunately, everybody only talks about Jody Arias. Nobody talks about Travis Alexander, the unfortunate young man who was uh, murdered that day you know yeah he was a young only born in 77 yeah he was and uh you know he really he was a promising motivational speaker uh and had had a very tough life uh his parents were both addicted to drugs uh he had multiple siblings and they all lived in pretty dire conditions until he was about i believe it was and he was taken in by his grandmother, uh, a Mrs. Mm-hmm. Harvey. And then she brought Travis, and I believe all the other siblings eventually ended up living with her. 
and she brought all of them into the Mormon church. Right, right. It, uh, I did see in my research where uh, it was the grandparents that introduced them to the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, or as everybody mm-hmm. else knows it, the Mormon church. So, I mean, definitely, you know, interesting um, thing there. I mean, I'm just looking quickly here at the Wikipedia page. I mean, the cause of death that they have here listed excessive blood loss caused by cuts not only to the jugular vein, the common carotid artery, and the trachea, as well as his hands. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on top of that, the gunshot wound. It says, uh, right. I don't even know if that was done after he died. I mean, who uh, right. she obviously uh, did a number on him. Yeah, and there was also a, a stab wound in his chest that uh, hit the vena cava, which would have been fatal. Right. So, uh, but he fought. I mean, it was it was a struggle. Right, right. Well, let's talk about so, the victim. I mean, obviously. We talked about him and said, you know, he was born in 77 in Riverside to Gary and Pamela Alexander. But you mentioned that, you know, they were he was kind of shuffled around amongst family members and his parents and so on and so forth. Till he did go stay at age 11, I believe, uh, with his paternal grandparents. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is it true that his parents were drug addicts? Is that why he was shuffled around? That is correct. And they lived, I mean, like at one time I read they were living in a tent in somebody's backyard. And they had no water, no toilet, no electricity. Um, and that made, you know, that I think that made a huge impact on his uh, his aspirations for the future. Because right. when, as an adult... He had a beautiful home. He was very kept it very neat, very clean, and uh, took very good care of it. Um, so that's uh, he not only joined the Mormon Church, he found his calling with prepaid legal, which is a legal insurance. For example, right. you know if you're a salesman, you you know, pay prepaid legal, and if you ever need an attorney for anything, they provide you one. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's something definitely interesting. Now, let's focus in on his mother, to be exact, Pamela Elizabeth uh, Morgan Alexander. She died in 2005. Uh, I don't really see much on her and didn't in my resource search. Did she die of drugs, or had she gotten clean by 2005? Uh, You know, I honestly, I don't know. There isn't a lot of information about the parents. I, I, if she, if she was clean, I think that the the drug use had taken a toll on her health, and she was not very healthy. And so I think that she passed away. If, I don't know that it was drugs or not, but if it wasn't drugs, it was just the poor health that comes after years of of abusing drugs and, and not taking good care of yourself. Uh-huh. Right, right. So let's get into the meat and taters of this thing while we're talking about uh, everything. Let's talk about the murder. Uh, 
Obviously, we <clears throat> described the uh, cause of death as listed here on Wikipedia, but what exactly, what is the known story? How did this all start? Uh, and how, like, I see that Jody said that she did all this in self-defense. So Correct. what happened that night? Well, Jody had gone to visit Travis on June 4th, 2008. She, uh, she left Northern California for Southern California, I believe, on June 2nd. She drove to Mesa, Arizona, and arrived in the early morning hours of, after spending a little time in Southern California, in the early morning hours of June 4th. She spent the day of June 4th with Travis, um, and they did have – they had a sexual relationship. Right. Mormons are very – are against – it's very against their tenants to engage in premarital sex. So this was an aspect of Travis's life that he did have to hide from friends, family, and uh, other members of the church. Uh, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, though. He was a normal, healthy adult man. And he had a woman who was throwing herself at him 24-7. Unfortunately, as, as much as he knew she was not good for him, he could not resist that aspect. So I want to get that out there. But anyway, so they had spent the day together, and then around Five five thirty. We know that Travis was in the shower and someone was taking pictures, Jody, because we have those pictures and they're time stamped and date stamped. And then at around five thirty is the last picture of Travis alive, and I think you've seen it. He's looking at the camera and he looks kind of shocked. And then after that, there's a an accidental picture of the ceiling. And it's blurry. And then a few minutes later, there's a picture that appears to be the head and shoulders of a man and a leg wearing sweatpants and a lot of blood. Right. Which is another accidental picture. So, in essence, Jody Arias, the photographer, inadvertently chronicled the last minutes of Travis Alexander's life. And let's be and honest, then, nobody would nobody would honestly in the in the act of committing a crime mean to right. you know photograph. Well she but she I think the downfall was she had to be taking pictures of him. And so she had the camera. It's almost like an obsession. Right. And so if she had just if she hadn't been taking pictures of him, none of this would have existed. So, I mean, and then she tried to delete the pictures and run the camera and memory card through the washer. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be divine intervention that those things did not destroy the memory card. And, you know, they were able to recover all the deleted photos. Um, and right. and that's... Absolutely. Uh, so that's uh, that basically, and then she basically locked the bedroom door 
there was a struggle. He was stabbed in the chest. We don't know the exact sequence of events, but he had defensive wounds on his hands. He had shallow wounds on his back. Um, there were like 27 stab wounds. And then he apparently got away and was going up the hall toward the master bedroom, probably trying to escape when she caught him and that's when the throat was cut. And that was the coup de grace. And then she dragged him back to the bathroom, shot him in the head with the 25 that I believe was stolen from her grandparents, her grandfather, and then Mm -hmm. left his body in the shower, locked the bedroom door, locked the house up, and left and went back, went on her her way to Utah to see another guy in Salt Lake City area. Well, another piece of damning evidence, and I want to mention this because I noticed you don't have it on the outline, is the budget rental car. Um, You know, when it gets back... It had been driven 2,800 miles. Uh, It was missing its floor mats, had red stains on its front and rear seat. I mean, she obviously was an amateur at this because, I mean, you you look at some of the other people you see on these uh, true crime shows and stuff, it sounds like she didn't do a very good job of trying to cover it up. And, you know, also, the friend that you mentioned that was in West Jordan that she meant that she met noticed that not only had she dyed her hair, but she had cuts on her hands. So I right. mean, right? And those those were all parts of later on, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, I apologize. I was going to talk about those little things because it is well, you know, it's it's one of those things, and I think we talked about this once before. Um, police don't catch the smart ones, and even the ones who think they're smart end up doing things that give them away. Right. And so this is exactly, I don't think she thought that they could figure out the budget rental car or that Uh they would go to budget, and that's why she went all the way down to, instead of getting the car at budget in Wairika, where she lived, she went all the way down to Redding. And uh, if you watched, it's kind of funny, too, because with Jodi Arias, it's her explanation of things is just maddening because everything, she has an excuse. She has an explanation. Doesn't make sense half the time, but she has an explanation or justification for why she did stuff. The way she did it. It wasn't really to try and, it wasn't, I I wasn't going to Reading to get that rental car to try and keep people from knowing I had the rental car. It was just cheaper and I had family in Reading that I could go stay with. You know. Um, And then saying, you know, her budget didn't permit her to do, uh, to do a trip to see Travis in May. Uh, but yet she has the money to go to Utah and Mesa in June. Sometimes she knows that she's, she's one of those people that she says something and then it kind of contradicts something else that she's already said. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, and her, you know, her credibility is uh, very, very, very low. Absolutely. If it's not corroborated Absolutely. by independent witnesses, I'm not going to believe it. If it's not corroborated by notarized documents, I'm not going to believe it because. So the inv- the investigation takes about a month. Am I right on this? Correct. Uh, Correct. From June 9th, when the friends went into his house, discovered the pools of blood leading to the master bedroom, uh, mm-hmm. it takes about a month for them to formally charge Ju- uh, Arius, correct? Jody. Correct. Correct. Uh, okay. They waited for, I believe it was DNA on uh, blood, and there was a latent palm print on a wall in the, in the bathroom hallway from the master bedroom to the bathroom to the bathroom. There was a latent palm print and it was a mixture of Jody and Travis's blood. And then there were hairs that were found in the bathroom and hallway that were Jody areas. Cause this is 2008. So they were able to do uh, DNA testing on the blood and hairs relatively quickly and get answers relatively quickly. And that's when the, that's when the um, indictment was, was done and Jody was arrested in Wairika, California. Right. And at the time she was loading up her car and she had purchased a nine millimeter handgun and she was supposed to be going camping with some other guys. And I kind of wonder what might have happened to those other guys if she hadn't been arrested. Absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously a cold-blooded murderer ain't too scared to pull the trigger on somebody else. But one thing that kind of strikes me as odd, what is the big disparage, the big date date between when she's arrested and July, July 15th? And she's actually extradited all the way in September. What what took so long to get her to uh, to get her to Arizona? Well, she I believe contested extradition from California, and so that process can take a couple of months to work it out. Basically. Um, if you're in California and you're wanted for a crime in, or say you're in Arkansas, you're wanted for a crime in Missouri. Missouri uh-huh. has to ask Arkansas to send you to Missouri. And there's right. a process. They have to provide the indictment. They, I mean, sometimes they have to basically provide the probable cause evidence to the court in Missouri or to the court in Arkansas. To prove that you you know they have probable cause to bring you to trial in Missouri, so and that, right. that can take uh, a couple months to to do it. Court calendar time. It could have been court calendar time. It could have been the time to process evidence and information and witness statements to get them to California. Um, and that's actually interesting that I never. I never really um, thought very much about that extradition process for Jody. 
So yeah, uh, was, that's something I'm going to have to look into and see. Right, right. Um, yes, yeah, she was indicted on July 9th, which was her birthday, and then arrested on July on July 15th. Now, mind you, in between the time that she's arrested and the time that she's extradited, she gave several different accounts about her involvement in Alexander's death. What she originally told him was that she hadn't been in Mesa on the day of the murder and that last seen him in 2007. And then later she told him that two intruders had broken into Alexander's home and murdered him and attacked her. Right, the second right. Story, the second story I have to just straight go, but yeah, so you're going to go to the see your friend the next day calm after your boyfriend had just been murdered seemingly in front of you and you were attacked? That makes and, Well, no, no, and... And he, they murder him in front of her, and then they let her go? Yeah. And if you watch on YouTube, you can see the interviews. Uh, initially, yeah, she had, and she covered her tracks. She turned her phone off. She told people that she got lost. She went 100 miles in the wrong direction and then had to stop and sleep. So a trip that should have taken her about 10 hours, took 24 because she was supposed to arrive in Utah on June, June 4th and didn't arrive until June 5th. But little did they know she actually stopped off. She had stopped in Mesa. Correct. Correct. And, um, I know. But um, yeah, and when you see the initial uh, uh, the initial interview, um, she's talking to Flores. No, I was I haven't been there since I moved in April. We've talked. We were planning trips, but you know we we never it never happened. And then Flores knows the entire time because not only do they have her DNA, um, they right. and the mixture of her blood and Travis's blood, which could only have happened during the murder. Um, he's got pictures. And some of the deleted photographs were very compromising photographs of her and of Travis mm-hmm. taken on June 4th. And so, right. you know, he lets her go on for a little while, and then he says, look, I know you were there. I've got pictures. And he opens, brings the picture up, and he covers up the body, but just so you can see the face. And he's like, that's you. And she she leans forward and she looks. And she goes, that looks like me. Oh, and Jesus, already. The first, time, the first time I saw it, I was like, I thought, woman, please. Yeah. You know, now would be the time right, to say, okay, I went there. He freaked out. He tried to beat me. I, I snapped and... But she didn't do that. Then she came up yeah. the next, and it was the next day. They let her stew overnight, and the next day she comes in and she starts telling the intruder story. And there are some odd things about the intruder story. The intruders were a man and a woman. Uh-huh. The intruders fought with Travis. 
but um, just seemingly ignored her. They knew who she was, but they were there for Travis. Right, right. And then all they did that she said they kept took her registration and let her leave and said, "Don't tell anybody." I, I think one of the other aspects of Jody's personality is that she is a drama queen. The more dramatic, the better. She weaves this into, in her media interviews, uh, like Inside Edition, she weaves this in and she's like, these people are going to get away with it because I can't say anything because my family's in danger. You know, so it's just, I don't know. Right. So, no, and Nancy Grace coined the term ninjas for them, but she never referred to them as ninjas. She referred to them as people with with uh, with masks over their faces, a man and a woman. They were white Americans. Um, I have you ever watched her interviews or her testimony? Who Nancy? No, or no, Jody? Jody Arias. Jody. Oh no, no, I haven't seen it. Okay, good. Oh, you, you, I would love to. I would love for you to watch it and give me a man's perspective on it. Okay, I'll have to check it out and <laughs> see what I can do there because uh, I already so. have just this itch in my left hand to just smack. What's up, woman? Yep, I, I, um, I, you know, I, I, I said many times while the trial was going on, when I was talking to different people, when she was talking about the abuse, and I'm like, you broke in his email, you ruined his car, you did all these things, and he didn't smack the crap out of you, but you drop a camera, and he's going to go nuts. Right, right. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think. So. That, that was the self-defense. She claimed she dropped the camera. She, yeah, she claimed that he had been abusive during the course of their relationship, but there was never any corroboration of any of that. Um, I am sure. I have no doubt in my mind that Jody Arias probably drove Travis Alexander to bang his head against a wall many times. She would hack into his email, Facebook, social media. She would take journals and uh, things that did belong to her from him. Uh, There was a ring that went missing that she took. Uh, And, you know, her supporters say, well, you can't prove any of that. There's no police report. She was never charged, yada, yada, yada. But multiple people said that Travis told them Jody took these things. Right, and, right. <laughs> you know, I, it's an inference that we could draw. We're not in court. It doesn't have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. It is an inference. He told multiple people about her stealing journals, and she was obsessive with them. When they were interviewing friends right after his body was found, that was a word that came up multiple times from these friends that she was obsessed with Travis. She was obsessive about Travis. 
and she would let her, you know, let herself into the house whenever she wanted to. She would spy on him when he was with other girls. You know, I, I, she probably did drive him to want to smack the crap out of her, but he didn't. And I don't believe that he ever did. I believe he lost his temper with her. I believe he said some mean, ugly, nasty things, but I think that he was trying to be mean, ugly, and nasty, thinking I don't. She'll say I'm not going to be treated that way and leave him alone. Because I've done that to people. If I just don't get the hint, then I make it so that I'm an unpleasant person that they don't want to be around anymore. And right, it right. works. <laughs> Unless, you know, unless they're obsessed stalker and then it doesn't work. It just, you know, makes them, they just ignore it. And that's something, too, with Jodi. She's got a stalker obsessive personality. She hears what she wants to hear. I mean, he could tell her, Jodi, I hope you fall off the face of the earth and die. And she would hear, oh, Jodi, I can't live without you. So obviously, I think we've established she's kind of she's kind of messed up in the head. <laughs> she's nutty as a fruitcake, man. <laughs> well, let's talk about Juan Martinez. We get introduced to some of the characters that are going to play a role in this case. What what what's the deal with old Juan Martinez? Juan Martinez is uh, was is and probably will be until the day he retires, a star prosecutor in Maricopa County, Arizona. Um, he is, uh, I believe he's, he's from California as well. Uh, I believe he was the son of migrant workers, and he's now one of the prosecutors in the Maricopa you know, District Attorney's Office with a very good record. Um, he is... Not a large man, but he has a large presence in a courtroom. And he's very brash, very dramatic, very intelligent. He is one of the few, uh, I believe, who actually, he solos. He doesn't have a second chair when he's trying a case. Right. He has the police detective, which in Arizona, the police detective kind of assists the prosecutor in during the course of the trial, but he does not have a second chair prosecutor with him. And that is unusual in just about every jurisdiction because two people, you know, one may have the scientific areas be stronger with them. So they handle the, the, you know, scientific things. And one is better with people, so they handle the witnesses, the lay witnesses. But he handles it all himself, and he is very quick, very intelligent. Uh, He wrote a book uh, about the case. The name is escaping me right now, but I'll post a link to it on uh, the WordPress page. And it was a great, great book. Okay. Uh, that detailed and, the story from beginning to end. Right, right. And then we got Esteban Flores. Uh, Mr. Flores was the lead uh, investigator, correct? 
Correct. Correct. Okay. And so he's the he, one responsible he, for getting all the evidence together and everything, correct? Correct. And he also handled the interviews with most of the witnesses as well as with uh, with Jody. Now, when you say he handled the interviews with Jody, did he actually go out to California in this period between her extradition yes. or did he have to wait? He went to California uh, July 15th when they were going to arrest her. Once they got the okay. indictment and the arrest warrant, he traveled to California. And the first, the first time he interviewed her after her arrest was actually in, I think it was Siskiyou County in Wairika. Okay. Okay. So and that was two days. He also interviewed her parents. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. Well, I mean, he definitely did a good job, obviously, because, you know, they had the smoking gun, so to speak, and not only the evidence from the car and all that, that could all be considered consequential evidence. They actually got the palm print. So, I mean, well, right now, as far as the the budget rental car, even though the personnel – observed stains they did not preserve the stains and so there's uh-huh. no testing or determination as to what those stains were okay so i we so can't say it was travis's really blood in the in the rental car right well it, it wasn't um i mean you know you can draw the you can draw an inference that it could have been blood, but it's not proven to have been blood. Right, right. Makes sense. And you okay. know we're all about what's and that, proven in court, so we correct. don't want to go that way. Correct. And that's, what you know, about, an important thing to point out. Uh-huh. What about uh, Dr. Horn? Uh, I see she had to go through some psychiatric uh, treatment well, that, or that's in the pre-trial. Dr. Horn is the medical exam was the medical examiner in Maricopa oh, okay. County, and he was like Dr. McDreamy of the trial. He's a oh, very, man. very, very tall, handsome man with a lovely voice. Dr. Kevin Horn, if you're listening, please call me. <laughs> <laughs> And so I, I, I had to. Uh huh. That's right. Or or Facebook. Um, or Facebook. But no, he was, he was. Yeah, he was a, he was a medical examiner, and he testified at the trial, um, as to the cause of death and, and the sequence of wounds. And there was a bit of controversy because at an early hearing, um, in Arizona to, I believe, determine whether or not the case would be eligible for the death penalty. Uh, Detective Flores testified that the sequence of events was shot to the head and then stabbed. Right. And uh, that was not the sequence that Dr. Horn found. Right. What likely happened was that in speaking with Dr. Horn, Detective Flores 
misunderstood the sequence. Um, and why I bring it up is because Arius's attorneys attempted to say Dr. Horn committed perjury because of what Detective Flores testified to. Oh, wow. And then they said Detective Flores had committed perjury at the hearing because Dr. Horn's testimony did not support or, or was, was different than Detective Flores. And basically, you can't use a statement from one person to impeach someone else. Right. You have right. to have an inconsistent statement from the person who's testifying that impeaches their testimony in the proceeding. And so I, I didn't even include the number of times that they sought dismissal of all the charges and all the reasons that they sought dis- dismissal of all the charges because that would be an entire show in and of itself. <laughs> because from day one, they were trying to get the charges dismissed and challenging right. the death I mean, penalty. They were, even trying to, they were even trying before the trial began to disqualify the Maricopa Copa County District Attorney's Office. So, I mean, Correct. they were definitely grasping at straws trying to find some upper hand advantage. But the question coming out of that that springs in my mind is, for the death penalty, what does it matter whether the knife wounds or the gunshot came first? And that was Judge Ser- Sherry Stevens's, uh, essentially her her finding in one of the uh, motions to dismiss the death penalty. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's still cruel. Uh, the still the cruelty aggravator is still present, whether the gunshot came first or whether the uh, knife, you know, the knife gunshot came last. Uh, And one of the interesting things, too, it depends on at what point they're arguing about the gunshot and the sequence of the gunshot. Because if they're arguing against the death penalty, then the gunshot incapacitated him and he was unconscious. And so it couldn't be cruel because he was unconscious. But when Jody is claiming oh, so that he attacked less, her, it's less the gunshot did not do anything to him. him. That's their reasoning, it, correct. Oh, that wow, was their reasoning. But, wow. Uh, right. <laughs> These are defense attorneys. They they you know, they pull out all the stops when it comes to try to defend their it's clients. The and these were it. and these were not private attorneys. I also want to mention okay. these were public defenders provided to Jody Arias by the state of Arkansas, by the state of Arizona. Oh wow! So I mean, these were guys. They were not that, private uh, attorneys. They were public defenders. This kind of this kind of sounds a little bit like old Jose Baez, Casey Anthony situation. <laughs> mhm. But but uh, exactly. we mentioned her. We mentioned her earlier, uh, Judge Stevens. Uh, she sounds Correct. like pretty much an all-star in this case, you know. She pretty much had to put in overtime for this thing. Well, she got a lot of criticism. I think she was relatively new to the bench, 
I in in my observing the trial, watching it on television, you know, I think she did a good job controlling the courtroom and calling the balls and strikes. Mm-hmm. But she was in a difficult place because whenever she made a ruling that favored Arius, the public went crazy and the public didn't think that she should be on the bench and the public thought she was doing a bad job. But one of the problems that the public maybe wasn't aware of is that the defense was arguing that, you know, this was, uh, the, that, things were, you know, protecting Jody Arias' rights to a fair trial. Right. And that if, if Judge Stevens didn't rule for them, then it was going to, you know, jeopardize her right to a fair trial. And so Stevens was in a tough, she was in a tough position um, because when they invoked the Constitution and fair trial, then, you know, that puts her in a place where as much as you think it's not right for Jody Arias to have, and I can't think of any specific rulings uh, that she made that generated a lot of criticism, but, you know, most of the time when she made one that favored Arias, it was on solid legal grounds, and it was to protect Arius's right to a fair trial. Um, and that's, so. what, that's what it does seem like uh, I'm getting here from this uh, transcript is that, you know, she tried her best, and that's the thing, you know. Correct. Not every judge is – that's the thing people don't understand about judges. Not every – judges are human just like myself and you. Correct. It, there's still stuff Correct. left up to human error. So let's talk about Victoria Washington. How does she play a part in all this? She was one of Aries' first public defenders with L. Curtin Army. And around 2010, uh, these letters that were purported, 2010 is about when Jody Arias came up with the uh, abandoning the intruder story and claiming that Travis was killed in self-defense. And these letters showed up purportedly from Travis, uh, admitting to abuse of Jody, uh, talking about hitting her, uh, talking about some of the sexual acts they'd engaged in, and I believe talking about interest in children, which I think is where... Jody Arias crossed the line and really ended up hurting herself with the majority of the public. Right. You kill the man, and then you have the nerve to try and paint him to be a pedophile, even though it has nothing to do with the alleged murder, except that you you claim that's why he abused you. Because you knew he was a pedophile. And I mean, these um, left field couldn't. accusations, mm-hmm. these left field accusations, I have to once again draw a comparison to uh, Casey Anthony with her father and justify it, right. you know, bringing these left field accusations about molestation out there. I mean, 
I hate to draw comparisons between the two because they're two different cases. One involves an adult and one involves a child, but still. It you know, but like the one on the same wavelength. Well, one of the things that Casey and Jody have in common is that even when they're telling their 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 version, and somebody says, you know, this doesn't make sense. I don't believe you. Tell me the truth. They don't tell the truth. They don't drop it all and tell the truth of what really happened. They double down on their version. You know, in the interview with the intruder story, when Esteban Forrest says, look, this doesn't make any sense. These people would not have left you alive. They would have not let you leave. They would have killed right. you. you. They just she, committed murder. No, no. She doubled down on the story the same way Casey Anthony, when they said, you know, we know you didn't drop her off at a nanny. There is no nanny. The places you took us to, there's nobody there by that name. We know this isn't true. What happened? Casey doubled down on the nanny story. And that's what Jody does. So these are two women who are prodigious liars and make up these stories all the time in their everyday lives. And, you know, they're, it's like a compulsion. Rather than say, I went to the grocery store and, you know, bought milk, they, you know, went to the grocery store and they were robbed and uh, their car broke down and they had a flat tire and, you know, all these horrible things happened to them. So, but yeah, right. it's almost like compulsion. It's like second nature, like breathing to them. It, it, it really is insanity, honestly, is what it boils down to. They have something there mentally that the rest of us don't. But, uh, right. you know, next we have uh, L. Kirk Nermy. I'm sorry if I mispronounced the name, but uh, <laughs> where does... Where does uh, Nermi play a role he, in this? He was one of the – he was appointed to represent her with Victoria, uh, Victoria Washington. At some point when these letters showed up, I think Washington and Nermi knew they'd never get those letters in. So they were – she wanted to represent herself. So Jody Arias had her first foray into self-representation, and they were just standby – advisory council. So Jody goes to battle with Juan Martinez to try and get these letters admitted at her trial. Um, You know, it was like uh, Groot going to battle with Godzilla. (laughs) Right. Because, you know, Groot is sweet and cute but all he ever says is, I am Groot. <laughs> and, you know, Godzilla can level Tokyo with one breath. Right, exactly. And so she exactly. was she was so far over her head and outmatched. And what kept the letters from ever being admitted was she could not produce the originals. She, The letters were allegedly written to her that she could not produce the originals. And she said, but I received the letters from a third party by email. 
but hmm. they were written to her. So why could she not produce? And there was no, you know, she didn't get up there and testify, well, yes, but when I got the letters, they were so shocking that I destroyed them. But only after emailing and scanning them and e- emailing to my friend. So, but yeah, the, so the originals could never be examined, and so the, the letters were not admissible. Because they couldn't be authenticated. Right, right, absolutely. What about and uh, Jennifer? Jennifer Wilmot was uh, appointed after Victoria Washington withdrew. And Jennifer Wilmot is, uh, I think she's probably maybe about my age, between, you know, between 45 and 55. Um, she's a death-qualified attorney. Um, so she's um, uh, she's not some you know kid first year out of law school. And again, this demonstrates that public defenders fight just as hard for their clients as a private attorney does. Nermi and Wilmot have been parodied. They've been criticized. They've been threatened. They've had all kinds of bad publicity come their way because of their zealous representation of Jody Arias. And that's totally wrong. Um, Absolutely. You know, know, whether you let them do their job, they may not like it. Correct. Exactly. Now, I don't like the fact that they, I don't like the, I don't like the fact that they, well, they, they were kind of on board with a lot of the allegations, even though they were, totally unsupported Um, and I don't like that but I'm not I don't think it's proper to start sending bomb threats and death threats to an attorney's office absolutely not and I I have when I worked at a firm in the 90s we had an opposing party do that at the firm I worked for. And uh-huh. it was unsettling for the attorney, but I was like, oh, yeah, let me. Let him come near me. I'm going to be that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but it was very unsettling for the attorney. And I was like, I'll I'll walk you to your car. I'll protect you. <laughs> so I've lived alone I've lived alone. I haven't had a man protecting me since like 1990. And even then, when I was married, I think I would have been the one protecting my husband, not the other way around. (laughs) Because I'm the tough chick and he was the sensitive man. So, (laughs) but, um, you know, that's just not right. Let them do their job. You can disagree and dislike how they do it, but it does not does not entitle you to contact them and threaten them. And I would say that with well, any attorney, any expert in a a high profile case. Well, I got to ask about now uh Dr. Samuels. He testified yes. for nearly 6 days and said that Arius was suffering from acute stress at the time that she murdered Alexander. Um, Correct. Set its center body into flight or fight or flight mode. 
So at Correct. this point, they just completely changed what they're, you know, saying. Am I correct in assuming that? They're correct. saying, yeah, well, they, children, they, but... Yeah. Well, they knew that the intruder theory was not going to work because there was no unknown DNA. There were no unknown hairs. There was no unknown blood or other bodily fluids found. Um, so they knew mm-hmm. the intruder's story was not going to work. Um, and Dr. Samuels, I don't know, I don't know what possessed him, but one of the problems with his entire diagnosis, it turned out on cross-examination that his entire diagnosis was based on PD, PTD, PTSD testing that was administered right. to Arius while she was telling the intruder story. Oh, wow. Not once she settled on self-defense. And so that pretty much invalidates the whole PTSD. And for some reason, Samuels did not tear up all that testing and then get the, the you know, self-defense story and retest her with the self-defense story. He thought, well, you know, trauma is trauma. Right. But a made-up trauma that didn't happen is not, you know, is not a substitute for a trauma that allegedly did happen. It's just like I was in a car accident at 16, but if I said I was held at gunpoint and that was my trauma, which never happened to me, and then said, oh, wait, no, I was in a car accident when I was 16, then you redo the testing. And any, probably any other psychologist would have redone the testing. Right. But he didn't, and that ended up... Correct. And, yeah, you can, I mean, PTSD... Uh, it's something a lot of people don't understand. I mean, witnessing something, a car accident where somebody dies, even if it's not somebody close to you, can have that, that effect on you. Um, and it's not, it, it, it's not something you can control. It's not a sign of weakness. Um, it's, it's just your, your brain's reaction to something horrible. Whether it's a, a rob, you were robbed at gunpoint, you witnessed a murder, you witnessed a bank robbery, you were, you know, in a car accident, you witnessed a car accident where someone was killed, you went to war, you know, you're a police officer, you had to shoot someone in the line of duty. I mean, everybody, I think, has a form of some trauma that. It, it, it affects your life and it affects you for the rest of your life. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Everybody has forms of PTSD. It's just some are more debilitating than others. Right. Correct. Correct. And, so um, and, what about, it, mm-hmm. it, and I, I want to say, I mean, if, if you think, if you've had an experience like that and you, you have, Issues, problems sleeping, flashbacks, 
concentration, depression, talk to somebody and get help. Because it can be helped. And sometimes talking about it and, and learning to deal with it in a positive, constructive way can make it seem not as bad. You know? I agree. So it I doesn't. Over, so you don't get overwhelmed, you know. Um, and it's it's important that it's there's nothing wrong with you if it ha- if it happens to you. It's there's nothing wrong with you. It's not something wrong with you. And I'm all you know, for just get help. treatment for PTSD for sure because yeah. you know, untreated PTSD can have many unfortunate consequences. You know, least, a lot, least of all you taking your own life or somebody else's, unfortunately. Correct. But before so. we hit this top of the hour break, let's talk about Alice La Violette. Yes. Did I say that right? Uh, yes, La, La Violette, I believe is how they pronounce that. Um, oh, La Violette. Yes, yeah, she was, she was Jody Aries' domestic abuse expert. Um, she apparently, and you know, I have a problem with women who are not abused claiming to have been abused to get an upper hand in a situation, whether it's a divorce, a child custody, a, you know, getting, you know, getting a cheating boyfriend put in jail. I have a problem with that because it hurts the people who really have to deal with real abuse and face real abuse every day of their lives. And it's not right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, one of the things with La Valette is it seemed through her testimony that she could find abuse in just about anything. And she also had a way of looking at things uh, and first of all, you know, the, the as far as physical abuse goes, she only had Jody's word. And we've already mm-hmm. talked about the fact that Jody Arias is not credible. Right. She's a liar and a manipulator. So it's the source of the uh, it's the source of the information is someone who's gone on TV and said there were intruders. And, you know, this is this is what happened. This is the truth. I'm telling the truth. God knows I'm innocent. No jury will ever convict me. Then you're really kind of, you know, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Because if you can't corroborate what they're saying, then you really need to say, well, you know, these things were bad. Like Travis, there were some emails where Travis was exceptionally angry with her and said some really horrible things that should not have been said. But we lose our tempers. We say things we regret. And, um, you know, it's not there. Jody said some things to Travis that were uh, over the line. Yeah. And then there was the whole hacking into his emails and hacking into his social media and, you know, taking his journals and taking things that were meant something to him for herself because she couldn't have him. So. Very true, very true. Well, we're going to hit this uh, top of the hour break. We'll be back in probably about two minutes. 
So uh, we'll be right back. Stay tuned to Talk Radio 49 and Clear and Convincing. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub On Vapor. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub On Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub On Vapors. Vape it like you built it. I can hear you. I'm outside. Uh, it's a little rainy tonight. <laughs> yeah, luckily we sent, we must have sent our rain to you because luckily we ain't got no rain in a couple days. But I tell you, there was yeah. a while there where we were getting rain all sorts of ways. Yeah. It was like forest yeah, we... there for a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had some uh, pretty nasty one, nasty storm today. And now it's just Ooh. constant. So. Oh, man. Then again, some, some good rain might not be a bad thing around here, especially with all this sun we're getting. I know I, I, know yeah, I well, posted the It'll wash the pollen out. That's true, but I know I posted the meme coming out of winter last year saying first person to complain about the heat gets punched in the face, but, you know, I'll be the first person to complain about the heat. Holy crap. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I I did that too when we had the uh I think it was a nineteen degree uh evening I went to pick up my dry cleaning and somebody was saying how cold it was and I made a comment about yeah, the first person that complains about the heat is gonna get punched. 
And one of the women in the dry cleaner said, that's going to be me. Because <laughs> as soon as it gets hot, I'll start complaining. Yeah, there it is hotter than crap here, too. It's just oppressive. That's the problem. Oh, you oh, haven't Lord. been to southeast Louisiana. Oh, I'm It's nothing I'm, in Memphis. It's nothing in Memphis. It's it's nothing in Memphis. And in Memphis, in September, it starts getting nice and cool at night. This is true. And that does not that does not happen. That does not happen in New Orleans. I can remember Halloween's where we wore shorts. Oh wow. Yeah, and it, could not it, wear masks. It finally, it finally breaks around here in probably October is when it finally gets nice. Yeah, late September. And y'all aren't as humid. When it finally gets nice. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We don't have all the swamp land or anything. But <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back like... here into uh, let's get back here into old Jody. With uh, Maria De La Rosa, what uh, yes. role does Maria play here? Ma- Maria De La Rosa was the uh, mitigation specialist who worked with the defense team to build a, uh, I guess, a, a defense for the death penalty if Jody was convicted of murder. Okay, so she was there to play defense against the death penalty. Correct, correct. So and she I'm probably is the one who brought in LaViolette and uh, LaViolette and uh, Samuels. So I'm assuming she was probably brought in when the writing started to get, you know, put on the wall that she was probably going to get convicted. Well, no, this is something that a lot of people don't understand about a death penalty case. If the state is going to seek the death penalty, the defense has to begin preparing for that from day one. You don't wait for the outcome of the guilt phase of the trial and then prepare for the sentencing phase once the guilt phase is concluded. And a lot of people, I've seen a lot of comments on different message boards about different cases that say, you know, the attorney knew he was going to be convicted because he was preparing a mitigation case. And that's not at all true. They have to prepare from day one, just as the the prosecutor is preparing from day one to put together a case for the sentencing hearing to have the death penalty imposed. Okay. It's not something that you can wait and do once the the guilt phase concludes. And so it's, it's not a, it's not done when conviction is a foregone conclusion. It's done from day one part of preparing the whole case. For all parts of the mm-hmm. trial. Mm-hmm. So, let's then talk about Dr. Janae DeMarte. What uh, Janine DeMarte? Yes, yeah, she was DeMarte. a uh, she was a prosecution expert. She was a psychologist. She was brought in to rebut the testimony from Samuel's 
primarily from Samuels, but I think also partially from LaVolette. And she did do a, a, an examination and some testing for Jody Arias as far as personality disorder and, you know, whether she was mentally ill. And another thing that people kind of equate personality disorders with mental illness and person in, personality disorders are not necessarily mental illness. And a lot of personality right. disorders, there's no treatment, there's no medication, there's no, there's a screw somewhere that ain't tight enough, and that mm-hmm. person is going to be that way no matter what you do. And they're not going to change unless they want to change. Okay. So, so I um, mean, I hear you on that. <laughs> Definitely, definitely hear you on that one. What about Deanna? Uh, what does Miss Reed do here? Deanna Reed was a very close friend of Travis. She was a former girlfriend. Um, he was very close to her uh, when he died. His little pug Napoleon went to live with Deanna. Um, they were great, you know, very very good friends. Uh, for a very long time, I believe they met uh, in college, and mm-hmm. so she was, and she was a former girlfriend. So um, her testimony was important that you know Travis never abused her. Uh, he, right. you know, never hit her, struck her, uh, freaked out because she broke something of his or anything of that nature. Absolutely, absolutely. She was there to contrast the picture that the uh, defense was trying the to present. The defense was uh, trying to present. paint, correct. So who's Lisa? Lisa Besides Andrews. <laughs> Lisa Andrews <laughs> was a girlfriend of Travis's as well. Uh, she was uh-huh. a bit younger than he was. I believe she was only about 19. And... Uh, she was kind of Jody's competition. Uh, something we didn't mention is that Jody and Travis met in September of 2006. They kind of started officially dating in February of 2007. And then they broke up in June of 2007 because apparently while Travis was in the shower or sleeping, Jody got a hold of his phone he received a text from another woman, and Jody texted back, spending time with Jody to the woman, uh, which was an you know incredible incredible invasion of of Travis's privacy. She had no business putting her hands on his phone, looking at his phone, doing anything with his phone. Um, of course, her story was that was all mutual. They did it to show they trusted each other, but. You know, it seems like the only stories that ever came out were ones about her violating his privacy and not him violating her privacy. Right. So, um, but again, that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the 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 way she is with the obsessive personality. Um, her moving to Mesa after they her moving to Mesa after they broke up was all Travis's idea. 
when his friends, he wasn't real happy when she showed up in Mesa to live in Mesa near him after they'd broken up. And she lived in his house for a little while. She was over there all the time. She let herself in whenever she wanted to. Um, You know, Travis had an open door policy. But if the door wasn't open, Jody'd use the doggy door. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, it was just... It was just weird. But Lisa is the girl he started dating because Travis was looking for a good, proper Mormon woman. And that was not Jody right. Arias. Absolutely um, not. And, you know, Jody Arias, she meets him and he, she meets him in September and she becomes a Mormon in November. I mean, that she would give up her personality to try her try and make herself what he wanted. Uh-huh. And what would have been more successful for her was to pretend to be a virgin and say no to sex. And then he would have married her. But right. you know, she just didn't get enough. And there so that was and I think he was conflicted as well because he knew he knew what he was doing was not right in the eyes of the Mormon church. And so I think he was conflicted with that because he would have times when he'd try to get Jody out of his life, but then she would come back again. And like I said, he was a healthy adult male and had a woman throwing herself at him. Right. That he told people he thought she was an infomaniac because she couldn't get enough. Mm-hmm. So you know he's he's going to give in to temptation. Um, but when it comes to temptation, she's kind of a low hanging fruit. And I think that's another thing too. She she should have played hard to get. Very true. And that Very that true. might have. You know, that might have worked out better for her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, could have worked out better for him, too. <laughs> yeah. That, well, definitely, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> and then uh, Marie Mimi Hall, I'm just going to skip ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that we've got that right. uncomfortable pause over with. Uh, she was another <laughs> girl, a uh, woman that Travis was very interested in, but she didn't reciprocate his feelings. And um, okay. I think she was closer to his age. And she just, you know, there was no spark between them for her. Uh, now, right. had she had time to get to know him better and spend more time with him, you know, that might have changed. Uh, I, I think she would have been the, you know, the perfect Mormon wife for him. Okay. Uh, because yeah. I... I I don't think Jody's conversion was really a true conversion. Right, absolutely. Not. I think it was, I this is what he wants me to be, so I'll pretend to be it. Right. I completely agree with that. Jody was worried about Jody. Jody wasn't worried about what he wanted. Well, no, no, and I think that's something, and I know I've done it when I was younger, and I know I've known a lot of women who do it. Women sometimes will meet a guy and think he's the one, 
and then they will uh-huh. they will devote themselves to becoming everything that he wants them to be. Right. And they lose themselves. And a lot of the comments uh, about Travis, even people who are not necessarily uh, convinced that Jody is innocent, they are very critical of Travis. You played with the wrong woman. You shouldn't have, you know, you shouldn't have used her, thrown her away and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's the woman. If you give up yourself to become something else for someone else, that's on you. That's on Jody. She lived a thousand miles away. If there really was abuse, she was in Wairika, California. He was not going to show up at her house that night and make her come to Arizona. He did not come to Wairika and kidnap her and bring her back to Mesa. She made the choice to drive from Wairika to Mesa. So, uh, and again, if there was really abuse in the relationship, not only why would she maintain contact with him after she went back to Wairika, but again, why would she drive to Mesa for this abusive relationship? That would be insane. I completely agree with that statement. So now we're uh, we got everybody set. What's the prosecution's case once we start the trial? Well, the prosecution had um I think we kind of touched on this um about a week a week before Travis was murdered. A break in was reported at Jody's grandparents' house where Jody had been living. And among items stolen was a 25 caliber uh, pistol. Right. And uh, so that was a week before the murder. Uh, no proof that Jody did it, but the circumstances are kind of odd, as many, many things involving Jody Arias are. And so. The inference is Jody took the gun, staged the break-in, and then brought the gun with her to Arizona. Um, right. On her trip from Wairika, she stopped to see an ex-boyfriend uh-huh. and borrowed two gas cans from him. When she was in, she went to a Walmart in Salinas after having her hair dyed from blonde to brown and bought a gas can. So that's three gas cans. During her trip, she returned one. She claimed she, she claimed she returned the one, like she bought it and brought it out of the car and decided she didn't need it and went right back in and returned it immediately. Same day. Okay. Okay. But Walmart had no record of a return. Um, and right. then her, she turned her phone off, and the gas cans would have enabled her to uh, – and they had purchases of gas in, I think, Pasadena, California, uh, that would be enough to fill all three gas cans. 
So she could get from California through Arizona and into Utah before she'd ever have to stop and get gas. So there'd be no record of her in Arizona. She turned her her phone off so that her phone wouldn't ping in Arizona. Okay. Uh, There was the rental car and driving all the way down to Redding. And one of the interesting stories is the guy at the rental car agency uh, said that initially they wanted to rent her a red car. And she said, oh, no, 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 I don't want a red car. That draws too much attention. And so she got a white car. Um, And then when she was in Utah, she was pulled over because the license plate on the car had been turned upside down. So, you know, another one of those odd things. And, again, Jody had an explanation for everything. The red car, you get too many tickets. The license plate, well, there were these skater kids in California, and they must have been the ones to turn the license plate over. Um, And then they also had the DNA and the hair and the pictures from the camera. Right. That, uh, and, you know, she she didn't have an alibi for that early morning, June 4th to June 5th. She had no alibi. And then there were a couple other things. After Travis was dead, she sent him an email, and she called and left a lengthy voicemail on his voicemail system. Mm-hmm. Right. I had as, seen that. As though he wasn't dead. Uh, <laughs> or that, yeah, I think to establish that she didn't know he was dead, um, which was very interesting. And um, they didn't have any of the weapons. Uh, she did admit to stopping somewhere around the Hoover Dam. And I think she disposed of the knife and uh, the gun and anything else that she had from Travis's house when she stopped at Hoover Dam. And those things were never found. Right. So that was essentially right. the prosecution's case. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, it definitely, definitely sounds, you know, <clears throat> like they have an idea of where they want to go. What about these 18 days on the stand? Jody Arias testified in her own defense, and um, she spent 18 days on the stand. One of the interesting things about the trials in Arizona is that the mm-hmm. jurors are permitted to ask questions of every witness. And so um, what happens is the if it's a pro, during the prosecution's case, the, they do the direct examination, they do the cross-examination. Uh, if they want to do a rebuttal, they do a rebuttal. The jurors get to ask questions, and then the prosecution and defense can follow up based on the jurors' questions. And it's a really interesting and fascinating process um, to see. And, you know, like I said, Jody Arias was on the stand 18 days. I think 
her direct testimony took six or seven days. And then I think the prosecution cross-examination was six days. And then juror questions were a couple days. And then the follow-up after that. So, I mean, it was 18 right. days on the stand. She may have been, it may have been longer. I haven't looked at it in a while um, mm-hmm. to see how long, how it broke down. But, right. um, and the the cross-examination was really, you get to see the brilliance of Juan Martinez when you see him cross-examining Jody Arias. Well, now we kind of get into the meat and taters of what's the third and final story, the domestic violence and pedophilia allegations against Alexander from the Arias uh, defense. And they say, you know, things like he would would, uh, tell her about these fantasies he has, and she, they would paint a picture like she was just a good girlfriend trying to help him act these out. Is that what I'm getting from this, correct? That, well, I think one of the weird things, um, the domestic violence was claims, Jody made claims about three instances, I think, three incidents. One of the problems was that one of them was the finger that was injured after Travis was murdered. Um, she probably injured it while murdering Travis because she didn't have it when she left California. And when she got to Utah, she had the cut on her finger and she, you know, claimed it happened while she was working at a restaurant that didn't exist in Wairiga. Um, but she tried to claim that Travis broke that finger six months before the murder because she right. wouldn't lend him money, and he kicked her and broke her finger. And then she claimed when, finger. yeah, she claimed another earlier incident when they were driving in Los Angeles, and he he backhanded her in the car because he was in traffic and he was he just lost it. And then the other one was um, when she was getting ready to move back to Wairika, uh, he choked mm-hmm. her. And that was it. Right. And the rest right. was verbal. Okay. But no, and the pedophilia, she claimed in January that she went to his house to get something that she forgot when she was there earlier that day, and she walked in, and he had printed pictures of little boys in underwear and that one Uh of these pictures just magically flew off the bed with the the wind from the door and floated through the air and then landed face up at her feet. Oh, wow. And uh, that, you know, that was the basis of, of her. And I... I don't believe a word of it. I don't believe it ever happened. I don't believe that Travis had any interest in children or, you know, his interests of a sexual nature were 
toward adult women. I mean, he was very flirty. And then he had this experience with this woman throwing herself at him. Um, right. But I don't, you know, he didn't, he didn't have an interest in young boys. But I, I think what happened was the domestic violence instances that she came up with weren't really big enough. And there had to be a reason for this domestic violence. So her knowing his secret about pedophilia was the reason for the domestic violence. And, you know, in Jody's mind, it made perfect sense, but it still, you know, doesn't mean, doesn't make any sense. And so then she turns herself into the, the martyr that she stayed with him and she continued having sex with him because she was going to save these little children from him. By doing that, if he had that, then he wouldn't need to, you know, bother with kids. And, right. you know, I'll, I'll go out there. It's total BS. Oh, and, absolutely. you know, it wasn't enough that she murdered him. She had to, you know, right. murder his reputation. She had to utterly destroy that's, him. That's absolutely disgusting. But luckily, mm-hmm. luckily, there was a verdict, and she was found guilty uh, in May of 2013. So correct. I mean, next it moves into the aggravation phase, and I mean, talk to us because you know I think the aggravation phase. I think Jody Arias is aggravated, but you know, <laughs> what does the aggravation phase really mean? Off with her head. Well, in in Arizona, again, um, Arizona had to redo their death penalty statutes. Uh, Right. So they, what they did, instead of a bifurcated trial, which is a guilt phase and a penalty phase, Arizona made it a guilt phase, an aggravation phase, and then the sentencing phase. So if you're found guilty, then they go to aggravation. And that's basically the state puts on evidence that demonstrates that the murder was uh, cruel, whatever the statutory aggravators are, you know, first-degree premeditated, uh, first-degree felony murder, which is, you know, committed during an armed robbery or sexual assault. Um, Right. That it was especially cruel. Uh, that the victim suffered, that the victim had mental suffering because they, you know, they knew they were going to die. Um, and so they have that faith, and the jury has to find beyond a reasonable doubt that aggravators exist. Mm-hmm. Once they find that, then they move to the sentencing phase. And so the verdict, she was found guilty of both premeditated first-degree premeditated and first-degree felony. Took things from the house when she left. Right. So that was... That was... She had enough of her mind about her that she was able to think, hey, I'm going to take this stuff with me. Correct. Correct. And um, so uh, she... Then they went to the aggravation phase, and the jurors did find that it was cruel. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'll have to look up another time. If we deal with Arizona again, I'll look up what their aggravators are. 
and then okay. they moved to the punishment phase. Right. And, um, and eventually, he's sentenced to life in prison, correct? Instead of the death penalty. Correct. They, correct. The, the first punishment phase, um, four jurors just could not sentence her to death. Which I sometimes, sometimes these juries, I kind of don't understand what they were thinking. You found her guilty of first-degree murder. No problem there. You found her, you found aggravating circumstances. No problem there. But then when it comes down to it, you can't sentence her to death. Right. Where was the disconnect? And one of the jurors said, you know, Travis shouldn't have treated her the way he did. No, buddy, that wasn't the guilt phase. You didn't say anything about that then. You know, sometimes I wonder with jurors, you know, what what went on in your mind. And I, I, when we eventually do Casey Anthony, poor thing, we keep having a, she's like bad luck. We haven't been able, every time we schedule her show, it gets continued or, or something comes up and we can't do it. Um, right. But that's the, the thing, you know, I couldn't understand with her jury because they found her guilty of lying. If you find her guilty of lying, how can you not find her guilty of, if not first degree mur- murder, but at least causing Kaylee's death right. through abuse or neglect, which was an option that they had. Mm-hmm. But that's 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 a rant for another night. <laughs> so um, yeah. So four of the jurors in that first sentencing uh, phase could not find her or could not vote for the death penalty. It has to be unanimous, all twelve jurors. So mm-hmm. the sentencing the sentencing phase resulted in a mistrial. The guilt, right? The guilty verdict and the aggravator; those two decisions stand. So then, in 2015, okay. they reschedule again in Arizona. You get two. The the state gets two bites of the apple uh-huh. for death penalty. If the first sentencing okay. phase results in a mistrial, they can either elect to sentence to life in prison, or they can elect to have a second sentencing phase. Of course, in the second sentencing phase, uh, Arias' attorneys tried to raise residual doubt with that jury, even though the question of her guilt was not open to debate. Um, But they did try to raise residual doubt, and they claimed to have found porn on the computer and uh, that that to have witnesses that said Travis was you know into porn and kitty porn and all kinds of things, but all of those things ended up falling flat. I mean, I don't think they ever even made it into the trial, uh, which was not televised. Um, and this is another one that's kind of funny. Jody Arias initially in 2008 invited media attention onto herself and the case by reaching out to Inside Edition and other news organizations uh, right. to be interviewed by them. And there were, I think, a couple of times during the, 
the pending trial where she was interviewed locally in Arizona. And then right before the uh, verdict in the guilt phase, she reached out to a local reporter and said, you know, a deal's a deal. I said I'd give you an interview. Um, if they find me not guilty, you know, get down here as quick as you can, and I'll give you the interview. I promise you the interview. Of course, if they find me guilty, you know, things might have to change, yada, yada, yada. She, she leaves this long voicemail. It's it's just you wonder how the woman's mind works. You really, really right. do. Aside from manipulative. I know that part, but um, but when it came as the sentencing phase for the the second phase approached, or second attempt approached, then all of a sudden the media was bad. Nancy Grace was mean. Jane Velez Mitchell was mean. They called her bad names. They poisoned the jury pool. They made her look guilty when she wasn't. They violated her constitutional rights. And so the media should be able to have no part in the sentencing trial, the second sentencing. <laughs> and Stevens, unfortunately, went with um, – it could not be televised. is right. available you know, online now, but it just couldn't be televised in progress. So, and a, a lot of descendants will do that. They'll seek out media attention, and then they'll complain that the media attention that they got was bad, and that that led to them not getting a fair trial. Hmm. And you know, it's kind of like, okay, you want to be rewarded for something you did that caused a problem? Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> I can Make, understand if you know if, if the prosecutor in your case is on the news every night and talking about the case every night, and you're not there and your defense attorneys aren't there and y'all aren't making comments. Yeah, I could understand how a defendant could argue that that had an effect, but it's just like right. Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost came in, and the defendants were happy to have them. But then in Rule 37, oh, no, the attorneys had conflicts of interest because of Paradise Lost. And, you know, and, and the media was bad, and, and the media poisoned the jury pools, and we couldn't get a fair trial. And, you know, so right. it's just – Absolutely. So, Absolutely. But that one um, – and Maria De La Rosa comes in on that one, on that second phase because – as it turns out, the juror on that phase who hung the jury was Facebook friends with Maria De La Rosa and had read The Secret, which was something Jody Arias was into, um, and uh, had seen the Jody Arias made-for-TV movie. Right. And didn't disclose that her ex-husband was prosecuted by Juan Martinez. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I'm thinking defense plant on the jury. And sadly, 
there's nothing that's ever going to be done about that. So uh, Jody ended up being sentenced to natural life in prison. Right, right. And then two books are written. So what do we know about these Correct. books? I believe you mentioned one of them earlier. What uh, Have you read them both or have you just read one? I have only read Juan Martinez's book. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's I, I think it's called Conviction. Uh, I, I like I said I, I I don't have the name, but I will post it on the WordPress page. Nermi's book is called Trapped Within This Areas, and it's told from Nermi's perspective as one of her attorneys. And mm-hmm. honestly, frankly, I could care less. Right. I really don't want right. to read anything written by Kurt Nermy about Jody Arias. Now, I I do know based on her reaction, he pretty much threw her under the bus and then rolled the bus over on her several times. Right, I was um, about to say because she turns around and gets into a court case with him. But I still I, that still does not make me want to read it. I did I downloaded a sample and I did read a, a couple pages, but like the mm-hmm. briefs that he wrote during her case, it's just not it, it, it's just not an easy read, and it's not an interesting read. And I mean, Juan Martinez's book you will not be able to put it down. When I was reading it, and this was a year ago, I mean, I was having to make myself go to bed at one thirty in the morning on a weeknight. Right. Because I could not stop. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll finish this chapter, and then I'll go to bed. And then next chapter. Okay, okay, let me read this chapter, and then I'll go to bed. So it was a page turner. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. But absolutely. He, you, you know, I've read his briefs and I've read the briefs he he authored when he in the case and I mean it's easy to read, makes sense, strong, well written, well thought out, strong arguments and concise facts that right. make it really really compelling read. Absolutely. So what is the status currently as we sit here of the direct appeal? The um, opening brief by Jody, the appellant, has not been filed yet. Um, In the last couple of weeks, Arias has filed requests to file her opening brief under seal, which means it would not be available to the public. Um, she's made two requests, and I know one was denied. Uh, I think the other one may have also been denied recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also requested numerous extensions of time. There were problems with the record because this trial um, went on. The trial opened in January of 2013. And the guilty verdict was May 8th of 2013. So this is about a four-month trial. Maybe a little bit more than four months. 
And then the sentencing phase, um, I think, was a couple of months in 2015. So that's a lot of transcripts for the court reporters to generate. And there were some problems with transcripts. There were some problems with um, one of the court reporters had problems getting his transcripts out on time. Uh, He was undergoing cancer treatment. So it took a four-month trial, though. I mean, again, it's – the longer the trial, the more – the more – you have to produce for the record, the more, right. you know, chance there is that it's going to take a long time. But they did get those issues sorted out. And mm-hmm. then uh, she's requested numerous extensions of time to file her opening brief. Once she files her opening brief, the, the state has, I think, six months to file their right. opposition. Mm-hmm. And then she'll have a little while to file a reply. Once the briefs are filed, then there'll be oral argument. And then once oral argument's done, then the appellate court will issue a decision when they issue a decision. But with a record for a five, four-month trial, uh, their decision is probably not going to come for a few months until a few months after oral argument. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it looks like we've pretty much covered and we're up to date. Uh, go ahead and tell everybody yeah. what they can uh, expect next week. Well, next week we're going to be talking about Dahlia DiPolito. She was a woman in Florida who married a guy in February and um, was tired of him by July and so she wanted somebody to get rid of him for her. Okay. And unfortunately, the person that she enlisted to help her with that little situation went to the police. And so mm-hmm. when she met with a hitman to arrange for the murder of her husband, that hitman was an undercover cop. And it was all on tape. And it ended up being an episode of Cops. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So. Well, I can't wait for that. This should be quite humorous <laughs> episode of uh, Clear and Convincing. But uh, we're pretty much wrapped up here. Uh, is there anything you got yeah. left? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to do my regular outro, even though I've already kind of given you a I've given you part of it but uh I want to thank everyone for listening to Clear and Convincing tonight with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. We're glad to finally be back. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at Clear and Convincing Podcast dot WordPress dot com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L Ann. Uh next week we've got episode ten, State of Florida versus Dahlia DiPolito. Uh, Dahlia ended up on an episode of Cops and, of course, was not happy about that. And next Tuesday, we'll be talking about the case. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night, everybody. Right from the start. 
were a thief, you stole my heart And I, your willing victim I let you see the parts of me that 